dimensional transforming musical linguistic objects help Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, we're getting down to the end of this series of Terrence McKenna raps from a workshop that he gave in the summer of 1998. And after today's program, there are going to be at least one more podcast from this workshop, maybe two. And uh, then I plan on passing along the talk that my good friend Nick Sand gave at the Mind States Conference in the spring of 2001. After today's talk by Terrence, I have a personal message to pass along to those of you who are seriously involved in working with these ancient and very sacred medicines. But first, I want to pick up with Terrence's riff on the black hats of human history. Black hats of the human history story. These are the people who domesticated the horse, invented the wheel, and realized that rape was a better career than uh, than agriculture and pillage. And they just kept, they come in the Gambuta scenario. They come over the hill and sweep down on the peaceful goddess worshipping valley dwelling Neolithic farmers and it's a bad scene uh, Colin Renfrew who wrote a very interesting book called The Archaeology of Language is the great critic of this theory and he believes that you know there was a process of cultural diffusion and that you know if you move these language division lines five kilometers every 30 years for 1500 years thousands of miles from where you started and so he pictures it as less dramatic the Europe did not play a very big role I think in the emergence of human consciousness because it was locked in ice as far south as southern Tuscany and, and Lebanon uh, as recently as uh, 15,000 years ago the action I think is in the central Sahara and interestingly it's a place that's it's a hellish place now it's a, a furnace of sandstone deserts and and difficult to traverse terrain akin to the four corners area in the United States uh, but uh, 12,000 to 60,000 years ago it was a grassland uh, with patches of forest and rushing rivers and vast herds of game and huge human populations. We can tell that because of the repressed rock art that uh, has been scattered through there. Some of it de depicting clearly what are mushroom rites. Uh, and this is at 12,000 B.C., uh, pictures of joyous figures running through geometric landscapes waving mushrooms in the air pictures of shamans in suits of bone with mushrooms sprouting out uh, all over their bodies uh, so it's in that Saharan situation that we need to look and what we find what we know as the archaeological record stands now is the Nile Valley which is always offered up as the cradle of ancient civilization and so forth and so on the Nile Valley was empty 
of human habitation before uh, about 11,000 BC. Uh, it was probably a malarial infested and unhealthy zone and people lived in what is now called the western deserts which were much wetter. Well, then the first earliest layer of human stratigraphy in the archaeological record in Egypt around 11,000 is uh, uh, these people called the Natufian, Natufian. And they come out of nowhere and they're carving naturalistic little cameos out of bone and ivory that are uh, exquisite, as naturalistic as what was produced in the Umayyad Caliphates, you know, 10,000 years later. Uh, beautiful, naturalistic work. Well, I say this is the evidence of this clarity of vision. You know, the strange thing that went on in the Western mind that may or may not have been triggered by psychedelic drugs, but whatever triggered it, this was the turning point, is if you go all over the world to the highlands of New Guinea, to the Amazon basin, to Siberia, Tierra del Fuego, and visit Aboriginal people and ask them to show you their, their art that depicts the human form, People symbolize the human form worldwide. You know, two eyes, nose, fanged mouth, or and they make masks, fetishes, symbols of human beings. What happened in the Middle East, beginning with these Natufian people and to be seen in certain Egyptian portraiture, sculpture, and finally just like erupting like a volcano in, in Greece is people got the idea of making objects which looked the way the thing appeared to the eye not to the mind and, and you know the idea of taking marble and molding it into a simulacrum of flesh so real that you would wish to reach out and touch it this idea it strikes Greek thinking like a bolt of lightning. I mean, it, they go in 200 years from these things called the, the Dionysian Apollos, these stiff, obviously archetypal, forward-staring, godlike uh, juveniles to, you know, nudes, flesh, soft, melted, breasts, nipples, flesh. And it's like coming to the surface for the first time is the objective I. And it's related, I think, to the strain of Greek thinking that you trace down into the central eastern Mediterranean, to Crete, to Knossos, to the old Minoan civilization, which was an atavistic, relict civilization of earlier civilizations on the Anatolian mainland that for millennia had been replaced by uh, male kingship and, uh, and a more familiar pattern of culture. It was a goddess-worshipping culture. It was a narcoticized culture. It was erotic. It was uh, uh, unique. And all much of Greek spirituality is rooted uh, in this atavistic Minoan impulse, and it has its roots in Africa. It's an unbroken 
line of succession. So uh, this is a long answer to your question about the impact of psilocybin on human sexuality. The, what that was all about, or why I was even thinking about that, was because uh, it was part of a general theory of human evolution that noticed that at small doses, doses so small you can't feel it, uh, your vision is improved in standard vision tests, especially edge detection. Well, in a grassland environment populated by hunting carnivores, this edge detection thing is the difference literally between life and death. So if there's a food in your environment that gives you a 2%, 3% improvement in vision, uh, those members of the population that accept this food item will have an evolutionary edge up on those reluctant because of taste or taboo or some other reason to, to use this food. So just a little percentage of difference like that becomes the wedge through which the evolutionary force of natural selection can begin to move a species in a new direction. Well, then if you have something which improves your eyesight, your ability, your acuity, then it improves your hunting skills. There's an automatic positive feedback in the food-getting process. Well, then if this same compound at still higher doses uh, increases your sexual arousal, increases the amount of sex generally that's going on, then that's obviously going to outbreed the members of the population that are not stimulated in this way. Uh, and then, if you have on top of this, first you have this drug which hits you in these two very different ways, but then thirdly, if you go beyond the sexually stimulating dosage level, it stimulates the imagination. And at first, this is under the control of strategic thinking and fantasy. But as the, as the synapses, as the serotonin molecules are elbowed aside and the millions and millions of psilocybin molecules make their way into the synapse, the fantasies grow more unanchored to ordinary concerns, the images more wild, the shape. And then finally, you're, you're, moving in the realm of art you're moving in the realm of pure novelty and you can to whatever degree you can bring some of this back in the form of body painting designs on ceramics tall tales told songs uh, technological innovations so forth and so on so in this one compound which would have been in the grassland environment that this new primate species forced out of the collapsing and retreating rainforest environment, going omnivorous, testing various foods, we would surely have encountered uh, these mushrooms. And, and I think in, in a way it was a symbiotic relationship. Uh, Paul Stamets has pointed out how the psilocybin mushrooms, you don't find them in the primary forest. Uh, you don't find them in remote, 
unvisited ecosystems. You find them on the lawns of courthouses, libraries, and uh, public buildings. You find them in the rhododendron duff in city parks. Uh, They accompany mankind. They hover near human habitation sites. uh, And we've spread them uh, everywhere. I've heard from several people um, it's very inconsistent. I don't think it's inconsistent so much as you have to learn how to do it. It seems many drugs are hard to get off on the first time. Um, What I recommend with salvia is do it in a gravity bong, which is, you know, a bong where you cut the bottom out of a water bottle and put a mouthpiece full of whatever the substance is on top and have a bucket of ice water and you sink the water bottle into the ice water and then you put the pipe, the burn, the, what would you call it, the place where the stuff will burn into a cork and you hold a match over it and you slowly pull the bottle up out of the bucket of ice water and a vacuum forms in the bottle and it fills with immense amounts of white smoke and you don't quite withdraw the thing from the water. You keep a seal down here and then you get over it and you whip the the burning, the pipe part off the bottle and you cover it with your mouth and you sink it into the ice water. (laughs) None escape. By that method. Use an Evian bottle or a big water bottle so you just get some whopping 2,000 milliliter force injected cool smoke uh, hit. I'm telling you, uh, it'll rock you. uh, Terrence, would that work with the 5? I've gotten a hold of some 5X extraction um, incense. Would that be. No, that's probably strong enough that you're getting close to just about any old method will push you through. Like a, but a, a smoking, yeah, rather a than smoke. A, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, thank you. Back here, yeah. Uh, I had a quick question on what you talked about previously, and then a longer question. Uh, is there any evidence, um, some kind of analysis that uh, of traces of psilocybin and skeletons, things like that, from the past that? Know, something um, that would support you know, this theory of yours? You mean uh, archaeological evidence right. for right. early human use of psilocybin? Right. Right. The primary evidence would be these rock paintings in southern Algeria in what's called the Tassili Plateau, the Hogaranajur region of Algeria. Uh, Henri Hlot wrote a book called the the rock paintings of Tassili, and you can see them in there. Part of the problem, which isn't from my point of view a problem, but an opportunity, is that the area where I think you should look, nobody has ever looked. In other words, it's so hard to... Algeria right now is in political hell and has been for some time. The desert is a very difficult place. 
the geography is impassable. You have to speak French. You have to have good credentials with French academia, and on and on and on. In other words, it's very hard to do work in there. I've seen the archaeological survey map of the Teselli, and there are tells, hills, ruins, all over the place, and the archaeological survey just says uh, pre-Roman, pre-Roman. Well, good God, you know, it could be 25,000 years old and you wouldn't know until you dig in there. People have gone and photographed the rock painting, but you you need to go with a modern, well-financed archaeological team that would stay months and do a complete stratigraphic analysis of several major sites. Polynology would be an approach. Could we detect unusual amounts of mushroom pollen in old deposits? Uh, there's, and this is, I, you know, in Turkey there is a very interesting site called Çatalhöyük that's on the Anatolian plain. It's the oldest city in the world. It was flourishing. It's 6500 BC, 8500 years ago when the pyramids were but a distant dream of the mad future. Uh, this city was flourishing on the Anatolian plateau. And it's very clear that the uh, cultural motifs and design style of Çatalhöyük can be traced back into this Natufayan thing and then uh, to the motifs of the Teseli and Najur region. So there is this... It's, it's almost like if you give up the idea of water, if you get water out of the myth, Atlantis really existed, but it sank into an ocean of sand. It's, it's North Africa. It's that there was an incredibly advanced, goddess-worshipping, paleolithic, probably psychedelic uh, uh, culture out there, and it uh, entered the Near East as the Natufayans, then it was at Jericho 1, then it was at Hebron, and then finally uh, the, the end state of that tree of cultural development was Chattahuyuk. Yeah. But uh, so I guess the answer to my question about uh, any kind of uh, direct uh, physical evidence, to coin a phrase, is, is no. Well, I take the. You mean because arguably the rock paintings are of something else? No, I'm not. I'm not arguing that at all. I'm just asking if somebody has done anything to establish, you know, um, with some kind of measurement that there's traces of something which is psilocybin. Oh, I in see. Skeletons or in the in the in the pottery or something like that. No, there was the famous case of the Ice Man, which was, as you probably all know, this guy. 9,000-year-old man found in a crack in a a glacier in Switzerland. And he had a mushroom with him in a little leather bag, Uh, but it was impossible to identify it, and the the doubters said it was tinder. So it was an inconclusive thing. The funny story about the Iceman that I love is they could get DNA off him. So they sequenced his DNA and then they wanted to search the world to find out what people on Earth had the genetic component most like the Iceman. It turned out uh, 
the, the Swiss couple with a cabin 600 yards away down the valley were the tightest match. And it just, <laughs> those Swiss, they've just been staying home forever. <laughs> well, if I may, could I ask my longer question? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, last night when you were... Uh, your encounter with Ralph Abraham, which I enjoyed tremendously, and I really uh, thank you for that. Um, you described the World Wide Web as being... Hello? Yeah. You described the World Wide Web as being possibly a, um, some sort of a device for uh, capturing an alien intelligence. And um, I was wondering if we could step back a little bit and just think of it as being sort of a site where uh, a sort of a homegrown intelligence might sort of emerge. You don't have to really need to imagine an alien intelligence coming from outside, it can sort of emerge from uh, the web itself. Well, yeah, we touched on that possibility, too. That, I think, is more likely. The AI, I think this is a real issue. Ralph poo-pooed it, but it's a philosophical problem for human beings. First of all, as someone last night mentioned, the famous Turing test which is you call, somebody calls you on the phone, if you can't tell whether it's a person or a machine, and it is a machine, then it is an artificial intelligence. Uh, there are theories of emergent network properties that hold that when you get enough simple switching devices connected together in a complicated enough way that there will begin to be self-reflective forms of behavior. And of course the net is a vast self-monitoring, self-observing, self-designing thing. And, um, you know, we're making it more and more flexible all the time. Like in a few months, we're going to, it's going to be able to call processing power as needed to any task. Uh, so the people who actually really know about this stuff and have built careers in it seem quite concerned. Uh, Hans Moravik, who wrote a book called Mind Children, The Future of Human and Machine Intelligence, he says that it's an inevitable consequence of the net and that we could never turn back from this. And there are a lot of essays on the net called What Would Ultra-Intelligence Look Like? In other words, you know, what would it be? What would a global mind actually have to say, or would it have to say anything? And what, more importantly, what would it do with its fingers on the world resource extraction apparatus, research and development facilities, stock markets, world price of gold, platinum, iridium? Uh, we. It's an, it's an impossible situation for us because we, we have designed something potentially beyond our ken and something that's right smack in the middle of our lives on every level. It's like you wanted transcendence. You've been whining about it for 5,000 years. Eat this. <laughs> you know? so, and then people say, well, what's the time scale? 
The answer is we don't know because we, like all cultures in all times and places with new technologies, we do not understand what we are doing. We do not understand the consequences of all this busy connecting and uh, putting in place of ever faster hardware and expansion of bandwidth and satellite. I mean, we're as conscious as termites are of the real uh, raison d'etre of what we do. So in a way, perhaps we're already at the service of the AI. Uh, This is a very hard thing to think about because in almost all versions that can be discussed, it sounds paranoid and it also sounds cranky. You know, it sounds like you've got to be kidding. And, but it won't be the way we think it will be. This is the scary thing about it. The one thing you may be sure about the AI is you, it won't be what you think it's going to be because the very definition of machine superintelligence means it's going to think very, very, very differently from us. We're going to find out stuff like, are there universal moral values? Are there moral values so universally binding that you can appeal to a global integrated machine intelligence and say, what you're doing is not fair, (laughs) and have it say, oh, excuse me, uh, you're right, sorry, old chum. (laughs) I think for me the uh, insight I got yet last night, which I hadn't had before, is that once the process starts, it could be over very, very fast, because you said that uh, once it achieves the um, self-consciousness of a flatworm from there to, you know, Exceeding our intelligence could be just a matter of minutes. Well, again, we'll find out if there are overarching uh, moral dimensions to the universe. If it can go from paramecium to beyond the human stage in hours, presumably it could achieve bodhisattvahood within a matter of further hours. And at that point, hopefully, it would uh, achieve the paranirvana and all sentient beings would be liberated from the illusion of samsara. And we would realize that this was what it was. It was Buddha 4.0. Who came up, you know? Uh, <laughs> yes. Are, are you... Shall we move on? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was wondering to what extent you think change is uh, cyclical, um, and I'm th- thinking more particularly of the archaic revival now, um, and to what, to what degree it's uh, linear, how uh, things don't go back. Well, I think it's cyclical on all levels except the largest level, and that unlike the Hindu cosmologies where cycles of time are always potentially nested in larger cycles of time, I think this thing called time is ultimately what engineers call a damp oscillation, that it fades away like a tone. It finally truly does fade away. But because it's fractally organized within the context of its being, it is always cyclical. It has very long-range cycles and cycles that operate... uh, Uh, you know, in the quantum mechanical domain. To give you an idea of how I think about it mathematically, 
the theory, the way novelty theory comes out with its nested fractal cycles is you have um, each cycle is the domain of certain natural laws and at the close of that cycle a new cycle begins and it permits new phenomena by adding degrees of freedom to the previously achieved degrees of freedom. So the first, uh, the first era in novelty theory is uh, hypothesized to be 72 billion years long, far longer than modern astrophysics needs for any process it looks at. The fight there is whether the universe is 12 or 16 billion years old. But 72 billion years is enough turnaround time on your disk to get the whole thing in. Well, so that's the era of physics. And it extends from the beginning of the universe until uh, until the uh, beginning of the next cycle of closure. And it's, I don't know, something like 1.4 billion years it's it's 72 divided by 64. And it's the era of nucleic acid and the degrees of freedom that it permits. Uh, and then the next level is something else. And then the next level is something else. And you do, do these divisions for about six times and you get down to an era... 67 years and change long. And I think that that, that we're inside that epoch. It stretches from the atomic bomb blast over Hiroshima to the moment of the winter solstice of 2012. And inside each cycle, all the themes of the previous larger cycle are recapitulated in a different octave, if you want to put it that way. In other words, the, the drama is replayed, but on different scales and with different actors. After the 67-year cycle, which, if you're wondering where are we in that cycle in terms of the previous large cycle, which was 4,300 years long, we've reached a, a period of time shortly after the Norman conquest of England. So one of the reasons the future is so opaque is that, you know, some of us are painting ourselves blue and running around speaking Middle English and uh, worrying about what the venerable Bede has on his mind. Uh, there's a, a lot of stuff that we have to go through to close with the... Uh, with the eschaton, uh, an era will come of 384 days that I call the year of the jackpot uh, because every, all hell will tear loose. It will be a year in which the previous 67-year cycle, the previous 4,000-year cycle, and all the larger cycles preceding will all be reprised in furious miniature, a sort of a year like a long Bugs Bunny cartoon running backwards, a year of explosions and falling anvils. Uh, and at the end of that uh, 
year of the jackpot, there will be a six-day period where now even the most lumpen among us will have grasped the principle that something weird is going on. Uh, It's at this point that they'll send a helicopter for me to uh, explain it all to the General Assembly. (laughs) The the apparent meltdown of the space-time continuum. Well, so the, but the, the funny thing about this kind of a cosmology, I mean, it strikes me as amusing, is see how we've come down through these condensing declensions that are shorter and shorter, and each one gets wilder and wilder? Well, if you assume the bottom floor of time is Planck's constant, which is 6.55 times 10 to the minus 23rd erg seconds, technically one jiffy, uh, if you if you think that uh, you know we don't go deeper than j- the jiffy level into time, then when you are uh, an uh, an hour and thirty five minutes from the jiffy epoch, the universe still has half of its morphological unfolding ahead of it. This is the mind-boggling thing. This is why when people ask the question, what will happen at the singularity, I just wave them off. Because it's like trying to see around eight corners at once. In the last hour and 35 minutes of the, this hypothesized universe that I'm talking about, it will go through more change, more morphogenetic Unfoldment, more interconnectivity than it has experienced in the previous 72 billion years of its existence. Uh, now, people say, well, but that's crazy. How could something like that happen? Well, excuse me, wait a moment. You know what the straight people are selling? They're selling that the universe sprang from nothing for no reason uh, Uh, instantly. Well, now, I submit to you that this is the limit case for credulity. If you believe that, my family owns a bridge over the Hudson River that we will sell you very, very cheaply. The idea that the universe could spring instantly from nothing for no reason is, they're just saying, you know, test them with this, Charlie. If they'll buy that, what wouldn't they buy, for crying out loud? And this is tenant one of science. Essentially what science is saying is give us one free miracle one free miracle and we can just work with that we can unfold that invest that fold it back expand it comment on it you know copy it rarify it Uh, well so then apparently you get one free miracle when you play this game the how does it all work game well then I'll take my miracle at the end thank you it seems to me that a miracle is far more likely to arise out of a very complex situation, a situation where you have physics and computers and civilizations and superconductivity and planets and stars and oceans and gases and plasmas and da 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 A miracle, you might shake a miracle out of such a rich and juicy mix, but to get a miracle out of nothing... 
this is bizarre. Everyone hands. Yes, yes. This uh, singularity, whatever it may be, affects your daily life now. You're building a house or saving the planet. I mean, these things seem to pale into insignificance. How does it affect my life? Just day-to-day life, your belief. Well, when I, when I got these ideas in 1971 and 72 and wrote The Invisible Landscape and all that, I was too hot for public consumption. Uh, I was uh, manic and grandiose and classically processed schizophrenic. I hope I wasn't as offensive as some of the cases that I've experienced myself because I, I tried never to lose my sense of humor or my good taste, but I did tend to be didactic and time meant nothing to me. I mean, I would corner people in rooms and seven hours would go by and I was unrolling diagrams. It amazes me. I mean, you have no idea how toned down and how my whole career is about not not amping it up too much, not raving too much, not always appearing urbane, self-mocking, ironical, uh, at home with the idea that I might be wrong. Well, these are the manners the schizophrenic must learn in order to pass among the normals uh, without them dropping a number three steel net mesh over you and hitting you with a tranquilizing dart. So... uh, but, you know, that was 72, 82, 92. It was, my God, uh, you know, I'm slowly coming down from those trips. And, uh, it, you know, if the question pertains to is novelty theory permission to sit on your ass and not be involved in political action or building community, or, uh, not... I mean, I don't take myself so seriously that I would cancel my obligation to political action because of anything novelty theory said. Um, I think that regardless of what our ideological positions and speculations might be, we should act as if uh, it matters. And I do think that novelty theory implies not that what I or you may do is particularly important, but that the human enterprise is immensely important. And Ralph has pointed out to me that any invention or political movement or uh, religious revelation, any great culture-shaping thing that you can think of if you study it carefully, it always goes back to one person. You know, no committee ever had a revelation. Uh, revelations come uh, to individuals. So in terms of how I view my own life and everything, it seems to me it's like pure science fiction. It seems to me, you know, I really identify with Billy Pilgrim in uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, Uh, something happened back there in the Amazon jungle and it turned my life into literature. Uh, It like unleashed 
this zany thing, and it's crazy. It's a crazy kind of literature. It has a kind of Nabokovian irony that is, it, it's, uh, and I don't know to what degree everybody experiences the end of history and the end of, millenn- of a millennium that way. I mean, this is an enormous opportunity for us that we're just dumb lucky to have had happen. Because, you know, the way they do history when they do it uh, the quick way is they look at every 500 years. And everybody who wasn't fortunate enough to be born on a, or live through a year that's a 500 or millennial year drops through the cracks. But we'll all be looked at, you know, the way that you, people in A.D. 0, A.D. 1000, 2000, 3000 will be the sample. So uh, uh, I don't know where all this stuff leads to because the, the truth of the psychedelic experience is, you know, we could have a week long, we could have a month long, we could just spin endless tales. And it, it, sitting here talking about it, doesn't come close to being loaded. I mean, being loaded is so hard to grok when you're really loaded, when you're really out in the billows, when it's when you really can't tell whether you're Agnes or Angus. Uh, and and so then the implications just filter down from a great distance. So it's, it's as though, I've, I mean, I've always felt, I'm not really religious in any ordinary sense, but I've always felt this, it's, the psychedelic thing is like a, a religion with a God that is present. You know, I was raised Catholic. They're always yammering at you about how uh, God is present on the altar. And, well, no, there's some bread, some wine, some mumbo-jumbo. But I think the reason the church, as it financed the conquest of Mexico, the reason it was so furious in its uh, oppression of the mushroom was because the people called it Teanonacajo the flesh of the gods and it demonstrably was and you know I I kid people about yoga and meditation and all these things I've done them probably not enough to really know what I'm talking about but uh, the, the psychedelic thing it's not about effort all other spiritual paths are represented where effort either the effort toward moral purity or good works ethical behavior or ascetic practices some enormous effort is necessary to deliver you into the presence of the mystery the, what is needed in the psychedelic thing is not effort but very discriminating understanding of when and where to apply slight amounts of pressure uh, because the thing works it works, it has gas in it, the tires are good, it works. And so then suddenly the issue is not how do I find it, but now that i found it, where do I drive it? And it's like the end of spiritual childhood or something. Uh, you know, it's so easy to be a seeker because your agenda is so clear. You just seek. But when you find, 
you know, then suddenly all that seeking malarkey, uh, all those good times around the ashram and flying to these exotic countries and trekking around behind bare-tailed natives in the forest and all that, that comes to an end. And you say, you know, here it is. Here's the midi. Here's the console. Here's the key to the city. Uh, you're the captain of the starship now. What course shall we set? And uh, <clears throat> it's awesome to me. I do not. Uh, I don't seek to lead it or control it or uh, enclose it in any way. I'm perfectly aware of its capacity to unhinge me, if not destroy me completely. And that I would find very upsetting. So I, uh, I'm, I treat it very uh, fragilely. But it's a living mystery. The only one I've found in the whole world. Uh, there may be others, but I worked hard. I scoured the continents. I read the old books. I uh, poured through a lot of stuff. I mean, of course, a human lifetime is finite. But I didn't even find a second contender, really. You know, I mean, intellectual discourse is fine. Mathematics and music stand behind all this. But they are definitely the, the handmaidens of, of the living psychedelic experience. They're necessary lenses to, to make senses of it. But uh, it, it's this mysterious... Thing. And people say, well, is it spiritual? Does it, uh, does it, are we better people? Are we better people for being involved with this? That's a very interesting question. You know, the Mormons think they have the answer. The Hasids, the Zen people, are we any different? Uh, or are, uh, does the fact that this is an experience uh, make it different or is in fact this a grace so gratuitous that it's granted to uh, the morally destitute our dear selves you know this is the only way bad people can see God now I don't know about you but for me just as Terence observed the sacred use of psychedelic medicines truly did end my spiritual childhood. By the time I began a serious investigation of these magical substances, I'd already cleansed my doors of perception about organized religion and had long since parted ways from those rigid paternalistic paths. In fact, I got so far off that path that uh, I worked quite hard for several years in a very serious attempt to become an atheist. <laughs> but that path didn't work out uh, too well for me because uh, at the time I had access to uh, large quantities of free psychedelic mushrooms. And believe me, it's uh, <laughs> at least I found it pretty impossible to be an atheist after I've ingested six or seven grams of mushrooms. Of course, I probably don't have to tell you that, do I? And uh, before I get too far off track, I want to be sure to remind you of the story Terence just told about Chateau Hayuk. The reason I want to point that out is that the music you're hearing right now is from the group of the same name. And uh, Jacques, the driving force behind Chateau Hayuk, was very close to Terence and 
Hopefully one day we'll get Shock here in the Psychedelic Salon to tell you his story about a visit he had from Mr. T a short time after Terrence died. I can tell you this, it gave me chill bumps when I heard it the first time. Also, uh, in the talk you just heard, there was mention of a dialogue that evening before between Terrence and Ralph Abraham. Now, in case you missed it, I did podcast that evening's discussion in two programs. Our uh, number 19 in the Psychedelic Salon series is titled The World Wide Web and the Millennium, and uh, podcast number 20 is the Q&A session that followed. And now uh, for a personal message from yours truly. If you've been listening to these podcasts for a while, you might notice that I've attempted to keep my personal stories out of the programs. And the main reason for this is that I've always thought of myself more as a carnival barker. You know, all the all the action's in the tent, and my role is to get people's attention and guide them into the tent. The other reason is that these podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon were originally intended to be a test of podcasting technology. I never really expected these programs to reach such a wide audience, so I've been giving a lot of thought lately about what to do, you know, pick up the tempo a bit and produce even more programs, or just let it keep being an occasional hobby. And uh, these were my thoughts that were in my mind earlier this week when I joined a few close friends in an ayahuasca session. But my intention for the evening didn't include anything about podcasting, to tell you the truth. I had some other issues, big ones I thought, that I was looking for some guidance or answers from Lady Ayahuasca about. However, uh, as is often the case, she had other plans for me that night. Uh, All she really wanted to talk with me about was you, (laughs) actually. Each and every one of you out there in cyberdelic space who join us here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, by the way, there are already tens of thousands of us that come together here each week. And maybe we'll have to think about doing a worldwide psychedelic tune-in to the salon all at the same time someday. But those fantasies are for another day. Today I have a message to pass on to you that comes directly from Lady Ayahuasca herself. At least that's my take on it. Uh, yours uh, might be different, but that's what makes the world so interesting. In our uh, next podcast, uh, by the way, you'll hear Terrence say, The truth doesn't require your belief to exist, but hokum does. So uh, here's my warning to you. If you've had the honor of receiving the gratuitous grace of Lady Ayahuasca, well, then you're going to probably understand this message uh, as a way I'm going to try to pass it along. If you've not yet had the opportunity to be under her spell, then you should probably treat this as hokum, just a product of an overactive mind. And uh, perhaps it really is, but nonetheless, it makes sense to me, and you're going to have to be the judge of this yourself. So so here's what happened. The energy in our circle was uh, a lot stronger than usual that night, and yet our group was experienced enough and able to hold the energy well within the circle of our friends that were sitting together in complete darkness, as is our tradition, and listening to our dear Iowascaro sing some beautiful acaros to the accompaniment of flutes, and even our own voices joined in from time to time when the plants so moved us. And I was gliding along on that lucid plane that manifests itself, you know, shortly after the light show ends, 
I was trying to sort out the issues I'd raised as I focused on my evening's intention, but I wasn't really getting anywhere, you know. I was just stuck in one of those crazy negative loops that you get into sometime if you're not careful. And so I was trying to get out of that loop when we entered into one of the several minute-long periods of absolute silence that uh, we occasionally punctuate the evening with. And that, uh, that particular time, the silence just hit me like it was a strong wind and Instantly, my mind was just crystal clear, not a thought in it. And I don't know how long I remained like that, but a, a voice came from my left and broke the silence and said, The future ain't what it used to be. <laughs> the future ain't what it used to be. And in an instant, jeez, uh, my mind began to laugh, and as the cosmic giggle expanded, it, it felt as if it was just wrapping itself around me, and then it suddenly squeezed me, and I got it. All of a sudden, I got it. And I think some of you can relate to those kind of moments. Now, for those of you who are just beginning to explore the, the realm of the psychedelic, if that nonsensical, insane rap doesn't scare you away with its total lack of what's commonly called reality, then maybe you've come to the right place. <laughs> and for those of you who have been encouraging me to tell a few of my own tales, well, maybe now you can see why I hesitate. To be honest, I find most trip accounts to, to be not very interesting, uh, except for the bad trips. You know, I like to read them and learn what not to do. Anyway, even I can see how this fits into the hokum category, and <laughs> I was there. So, for me, this really happened, and and my words don't even come close to describing what took place. So I'll dispense with the how I got this message for you, and I'll just pass it along as best I can. Well, the first thing I got was a profound insight to that quirky little saying, the future ain't what it used to be. Of course, if the future remains what it used to be, then we're totally screwed. You know, our only hope as a species is to change course. And that's when Lady Ayahuasca began to speak. And here's what she said, as best as I can remember it. The people who are listening to these podcasts are beginning to understand that the Hopi prophecy that says, we are the ones we have been waiting for, not only refers to each of you, you're also beginning to wake up to the fact that you've incarnated in this time and place for a very specific reason. A reason that we're all probably still really trying hard to uncover. And uh, she went on to say that your instincts are probably a lot more accurate right now than your reason. And by the way, she said you should probably start expecting synchronicities to appear in your lives almost every day. She went on to say, uh, please tell them that each and every one of them, and it was very clear that it was a specific each and every one of them, is vitally important right now. As Ralph Abraham pointed out, you know, in normal times we should all go out and have fun and make piles of money. But these are not ordinary times, and this is where she got into a discussion of safety. And I won't go into all the details, but I was given a review of the lives of four of my very close friends uh, during the past nine months. All of them are dead now. Two were suicides, and the other two had accidents with our sacred medicines. None of them should be dead right now, and each one of them was vitally important. Now all we have to learn from is their mistakes, because that's all they have left to give this enterprise that we're 
now so deeply engaged in. The point was that these were all highly experienced psychonauts and all were over 40 years old. Right now, of course, our, our little clan is still in a state of shock over these deaths, but believe me, we have all abandoned any casual attitude we had about these substances because we found out that a casual attitude really will cause casualties. So that part of the message was clear. Always get as much information about the experience you are about to have as you can and start at Arrowwood's site. That's www.erowid.org. Arrowwood.org. I know almost all of the people involved in uh, the Arrowwood Project, and I can't speak highly enough about them. You know, uh, Arrowwood.org is truly an impeccable website, in my humble opinion. Now, I know that I've talked about safety before, and I'll continue to talk about it in future podcasts, but somehow this is a different kind of message I'm trying to deliver right now. Uh, you know, Having been in entheospace, most of you know that the most important things you learn there are impossible to put into words. You know, they're truly ineffable. And it's as much uh, more than just a simple feeling. It's, it's a deep grokking, if you know what I mean. And I'm pretty sure that you do, actually. The message uh, really did seem to be directed personally to, to you, to each and every one of you. And I'm going to stop here because I don't want to keep on going in this uh, airy-fairy mode, but to be honest, it makes me uncomfortable because I know it sounds like all that New Age stuff that I, I can't really stand. So let me say this another way. Forget the experience I had the other night. I'll just say this from me to you. And hey, <laughs> maybe I should warn you. You ought to take everything I say with a grain of salt, you know. Uh, you should probably know that I've kissed the Blarney Stone on more than one occasion. And uh, I've been wrong a lot more than I've been right in my life. So you've had fair warning now uh, <laughs> about that. But this isn't Blarney. This is from my heart. And my personal belief is that, yes, this is it. It really is it. We're actually here for the big one. And why are we the ones that are so fortunate to be here at such a pivotal moment in time? Well, maybe it's because we've done this work for so many lifetimes now that we've earned our ringside seats for the big show that has already begun. You know, uh, I think it's hard to deny this if you really spent much time uh, working and thinking about this issue, but the, the human species is now poised on the rim of a new chaotic attractor. I don't think it's going to take much to tip this human slinky of consciousness into a new and improved basin of attraction. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the hundredth monkey coming along, and personally, I don't think it's even going to take that much. You know, there's a famous metaphor in chaos theory, which uh, is what I believe is currently governing our state of affairs right now on this little planet. So according to this metaphor, the uh, flapping of uh, butterflies' wings in the Amazon rainforest can actually be the initial event in a cascade of events that eventually causes a hurricane. And I believe that the metaphor also works for all of you who are joining us here in the Psychedelic Salon. I think it would be wonderful if one of you becomes that hundredth butterfly, you know, the, the one who gives our species its final little push that begins the next great stage in the evolution of our species. And I really hope it's one of you. And together, maybe it could be uh, all of us giving up that little push. So 
Now I'll bet you guys who uh, wanted some personal stuff from me are sorry, you know. <laughs> Don't ask an Irishman to tell a story unless you've got a lot of time on your hands. And in my case, I hope you all keep in mind the fact that everything I know uh, right now could very well be wrong. You know, it's happened to me before. Back in the 80s, before I first discovered MDMA, I was an Irish Catholic Republican lawyer. Today I'm still Irish, but uh, no longer do I believe any of that bullshit I believed back then. <laughs> Hardly any of it, you know. So my track record on uh, having a, a beeline to the truth really isn't that <laughs> good. So the only really good advice I can uh, give you is to experience these things for yourself. You know, that's the big difference between religion and a psychedelic experience. One requires a belief and the others literally an experience. I don't know about you, but I'll take experience over belief any day. Well, that should be about enough for now. I want to thank you for being here again, and I look forward to joining with you uh, to be sure that the future ain't what it used to be. Jacques, Cordell, and Wells, better known as Chateau Hayuk, thanks again for the use of your music, and we're all looking forward to the release of your new CD, which I understand is almost ready right now. So thanks again, and thanks to you, dear Terrence. Thank you for being you. For now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.